So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 19. Uh, That's where we're going to be this morning. Now, when I entered into high school, I I began to feel this pressure just that kind of came on. And as I went through the years, that pressure kind of built up. And and here's what the, the, the pressure was. It was like, James, you need to decide what you're going to do for a career. Because it was this, like, the career is going to determine the program that you get into. And the program you want to get into, well, you need to choose the right school to go to. And you better start getting those applications in soon because graduation is coming. And so this was a pressure kind of, I I felt that I was putting on myself, but also a little bit from uh, teachers and others because they're kind of going like, man, this this is one of the biggest, if not the biggest decision that you are ever going to make. Now, I I decided I was good at science. I was like, I'm going to become a pharmacist. And I was all set to go and and do that. But God intervened. And uh, here I I find myself now. But, But that was almost 20 years ago. And so kind of looking back, I go, that was a big decision. But it's not the most important decision that I would say I've ever made. Now, we could go, your career, is that the most important? Is it whether to marry or who you marry? Is it where you're going to live? Is it whether to have children or how many children uh, that that you're going to have? Is that the most important decision? I would say no. I, I would say, actually, the most important decision that we ever make is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I'm not saying that just because I'm a pastor. I know some of you are like, well, you're paid to say that kind of stuff. But, but I'm hoping as we go through this, this, this message and this series that we're starting today that we're going to understand that this is the most important question that we ever answer. Now, every person has to deal with Jesus, or as some say, you have to answer the problem of Jesus. No serious scholar doubts that Jesus of Nazareth existed because he, he left such a mark on human history. That, that in our day-to-day lives, Jesus is impacting how we live, how we measure time and all of this. Now, even uh, sources outside of the Bible, non-Christian historians like Josephus, they talk about Jesus and they say, man, he did some amazing things. They're going, this, this man is unique. Larry King, the, the late legendary interviewer, he, he was asked, like, if you could interview any person in all of human history, who would you interview? And he said, easy, Jesus Christ. And he said, here's the question I would ask him. I would ask him if he was really born of a virgin, because the answer to that question changes everything. Now, Larry King, he understood that if Jesus is God, he would have to reorient his entire life around that truth. And, and so would we. Now, maybe, maybe you've met people who, who will say things like this. I haven't been convinced that Jesus claimed to be God. I haven't been convinced that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah or that he ever demonstrated it. And so until I'm convinced, I don't really have to do anything with that. And there are those who who will actually kind of go, well, the the Christians, the early church, what they did was they, they found this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. He did some amazing things, but then they kind of exaggerated his reputation, kind of blew him up, made him into something more than he actually was in order to gain power and influence. And many people, like we meet people every day. Maybe this is you, that you look at Jesus, you go, he's, he's a great teacher, great leader. Maybe you go, he, he, he was a revolutionary. But you don't 
consider him uh, to be one that you would worship or you would follow because you're not convinced that he's actually God or the savior of the world. And so in this conversation, before we kind of start, it's like, who do we say Jesus is? Maybe we should go, who did Jesus understand himself to be? Who did Jesus believe that he was? Has Christianity over-exaggerated the importance of this man from Nazareth? Have we misunderstood him? Have we misrepresented him? Or have we actually recognized who he is? And so again, the, the, the goal of this series that we're starting today is, is to, to look at Jesus and go, what, what's true about him? And then how does that impact our lives? And so we're going to jump in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. It says, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he said to them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. So uh, up to this point, let's catch up. Jesus has been in and around Galilee and Judea. He's been teaching, he's been performing miracles, and he's beginning to gain a following. Some people love him and they follow him. And then there's others who, who kind of reject him and they begin to hate him. Now, uh, in particular, this group that kind of rejects him and hates him are the Jewish religious leaders. And it gets to the point that they want to see him killed. Like John chapter 11, verse 53 it says the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. And so we get a sense of, of how intense things were getting in John chapter 11, verse 16, um, because one of Jesus' disciples, when Jesus is like, we're going up to, to Jerusalem, we're going to celebrate the Passover, well, he, he says this, let's go too and die with Jesus. Like he's going, this is not going to be a fun road trip to Jerusalem. This could be a suicide mission. There's a good chance we're going to be put to death if we go to Jerusalem. Now, I went to a couple of proms when I was in grade 12. Uh, the girl that I was going with, she went to a different school. And I don't know about different places in the world, but, but kind of how you roll up to the prom, that was a bit of a, a big deal. You kind of wanted to make a statement. You wanted to get some attention. And so for my, my prom, um, we were able to borrow an antique Jaguar in forest green, just this beautiful, beautiful car. Um, and so my date and I and my, my friend and, and his date, we, we roll up to the prom and people are like, man, where'd you get that car? It's, it's beautiful. It got some attention. And I was like, oh man, the next prom, I've got to do that one now. And so I borrowed my dad's minivan and I roll up to the prom and I get some attention and the statement I'm making to everybody is like, James is broke. He can't afford a, a limo, but it, it got some attention. And how you arrive kind of does this. Now there's a price on Jesus's head. People want to see him killed, some people with power. And so you'd expect Jesus to be like, okay, I'm going to slip in Jerusalem, kind of low key, under the radar, 
hope not to be detected, just kind of be there quietly, but Jesus does something totally different. He, he does this, like he, he does something that draws attention to himself as he goes into the Passover festival. Now, Passover is this major Jewish festival or holiday. And what it basically commemorates is how God brought the Jewish people, delivered them from slavery in Egypt, brought them out heading towards the promised land. And so hundreds of thousands of Jewish people would head towards Jerusalem at this time. They'd make the pilgrimage to celebrate there. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're walking towards the city and they're about two miles out when Jesus says to a few of his disciples, okay, what I want you to do is go into the, the village that's ahead. And you're going to find a colt. And I want you to bring that colt, that, that, that young donkey, back to me. And so they're like, okay. And, and they bring it back. And Jesus' disciples, they, they do what they're told. And Jesus gets onto the colt, and he begins riding towards Jerusalem. Now, f- for us, we're going, okay, this, this, this seems pretty normal. He's like, maybe his legs got tired, and he just wanted to ride uh, on a donkey. It's, it's fine. And it, it's like pretty normal. But then all of a sudden, people are like, well, let's take off our clothes. And they're throwing it on the road, and they're ripping apart trees, throwing the branches on the ground, and they're waving them in the air, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're going, okay, what, what just happened here? Now, the Jewish nation, they're subjects of Rome at this time. And so everywhere they go, there's essentially some Roman soldiers who are going, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. You step out of line, I'm putting you back in line, or you end up on a cross as an example of what happens to somebody who who opposes Rome, who goes against Rome. Now, the Jewish people, they're not enjoying this, but they're going, you know what, this is not going to last forever because God has promised a Messiah. That there's going to be a deliverer who's going to come and deliver us from our enemies. And based off of Old Testament prophecies, they're going, he's going to be a violent warrior, a warrior king. He's going to destroy our enemies. And so they, they imagine an earthly king, again, throws off their enemies, Rome at this time, and establishes uh, Israel as this independent nation again. And so if, if you're living under kind of occupation, obviously you want this Messiah, this deliverer to come as soon as possible. And so they're looking for somebody just just kind of signal the rebellion. Show us you're the leader, raise the standard, and, and we'll follow you. We will fight with you. And so again, for three years, Jesus has been around. He's, he's performed amazing miracles. He teaches unlike anybody else teaches. And he goes, I've got a kingdom. He speaks of the kingdom that is to come. And so people are going, Jesus could be the guy. This might be the Messiah, but the problem is Jesus seems to shy away from that idea. That, like there was one time where people went, Jesus, you are awesome. Let's make you king right now. And Jesus is like, nope. And he kind of slips out. He doesn't allow them to make him king by force. There, there's rumors that Jesus would perform a miracle. And people are like, you must be the Messiah. And Jesus would be like, yeah, I am. But don't tell anybody. Keep that to yourself. Shh. No. And so, like, here's what's going on. And people's enthusiasm for Jesus, it kind of ebbs and flows. There's this point in John chapter 6, verse 66, where it says, everybody deserts Jesus, except for his closest followers. And the hostility from the religious leaders towards Jesus is so great that they're all like, I don't know if I want to be identified with Jesus because it's not really good for business unless he's the Messiah. And so for the average Jewish person, they're probably going, Jesus, just hold a press conference. 
Just like, just make it clear. Tell us, who are you? I am the Messiah or I'm not the Messiah? Like, let's, let's do this. But Jesus kind of is like, no, let's, let's exist in kind of this gray area. But then one day, Jesus climbs onto a donkey and rides towards Jerusalem. And people start to lose their minds. Again, we're going like a donkey. Why are people so excited about this? But if you were a Jewish person longing for the Messiah, this is huge. Like, think about those movies that we watch. And so I'm going to paint this as a movie. This is like the, the disciples, the, 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 the donkey rolls up, and Jesus is looking at it, and everything is quiet. And he just hears breathing, and you can tell he's deep in thought. And he walks towards the donkey, and he gets on top, and the music starts to come up. And it's like something big is about to happen. It's getting louder and louder, and he starts to ride towards Jerusalem, and the music's getting louder, and people are, again, throwing clothes on the road and waving branches. And, and why? It's because this is the moment where, where the hero has arrived. Like, the, your, your hair, if this is a movie, it stands up on your arms. A tear rolls down your eye because this is a big moment. Now, why? Why? Because Jesus is fulfilling a well-known Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so no ordinary Jewish person would ride in toward the Passover, go into the city riding on an animal, but Jesus chooses to. Like, this is the equivalent of showing up to the Passover in the presidential limousine. Like, it's, it's making a big statement. And it's an indication that Jesus understood himself to be the Messiah. And so the crowds get larger and loud, louder because people are going, man, Rome's days, they're numbered. The Messiah's here. But not everybody is excited. Luke chapter 19, verse 39, it says, but some of the Pharisees, among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. And, and so the disciples are like, Jesus, get your, get your people under control. This is getting out of hand. Um, Rome might come in and, and kind of do things. And do you hear the things they're saying? But Jesus goes like, if they stop, well, the stones which are holding back are going to start to sing. Essentially, Jesus is going, you know what? They're, they're not wrong. They've, they've got this right. They understand who I am. And so if Jesus was going like, you know what, if he's not trying to make this claim that I'm the Messiah, this would be his chance to clear things up. Because the, the Pharisees are going like, don't you understand what this looks like, Jesus? Don't you understand it looks like you're claiming to be the Messiah? And if Jesus wasn't, this is a chance to be like, oh man, my bad. I didn't realize the optics of this situation. And he, he just kind of slips down off the donkey and goes like, guys, sorry, um, I, I did not mean to send that message. But Jesus has planned this moment. It's, it's deliberately calculated. And we, we can say this because like, what, what happens with the disciples? He goes, go find the donkey. And if somebody asks you, where are you taking that donkey? He says, tell them these words. Here's the password. The Lord needs it. Like Jesus has, has planned this moment. He's decided on this in advance. And he's making this statement, I am the Messiah. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it says, But as he came closer, Jesus came closer, 
and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize when God visited you. So why does Jesus weep for for Jerusalem? Well, he weeps because he knows what the future holds. And in about 40 years from the time that Jesus says these words, you find that the Roman army has encircled Jerusalem. It's building up embankments against it. And before the siege is over, the city with all its inhabitants, including the children, have suffered hunger, fire, blood, carnage, and destruction. And the the destruction, they say, was so bad that that you could pull a plow across the city, that no, no stone was left on top of another stone. And the reason this this happens historically is that, well, the Jewish people rose up against Rome, but Rome came in to kind of lay the hammer down. Again, you go, no, we're the bosses. But Jesus goes, here's here's what's really happening in the background, that you did not recognize when God visited you. It's like, when did God visit Jerusalem? Well, Jesus is going like, I came. I came to visit you during three years of ministry, that God in the flesh came to visit Jerusalem and they gave him the cold shoulder. And here we see that Jesus understood himself to be the divine son of God. Like the Jewish Jewish people, they missed their moment and it sealed their doom. And they rejected Jesus as their God and their king. And notice what Jesus does. He weeps for what's to come. There's, there's no, man, you're, you're, you're going to get what you deserve. He's not, he's not relishing the idea of what's, what's to come. It breaks his heart. But he understands rejecting God, it comes with its consequences. Jesus weeps because in his three years of ministry, he's not been able to redirect the path of this nation and cause all the people to follow him. Now, this is a sad moment, but in the same way, I think we can draw some encouragement from it, and you're going, okay, this is kind of weird, but I, I hope you'll track with me here. As, as, as Christians, we're told, go and make disciples. It, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Jesus gives this command. So it's not like really up for debate. But here's what we kind of go. Make disciples, ugh. Um, and it begins with, with sharing the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, his death, his resurrection, But we go, share this with people. What if they say no? What if they reject what I say to them? And and we have this fear of failure. And and so we're like, I don't want to fail. So we we don't do it. But here's where I find the encouragement. It's like Jesus is not expecting you to have a 100% return rate on this. Like Jesus does not have like a 100% kind of batting average in this, that, that people reject him. They reject his message and it's much more personal there than it will ever be for us because they're rejecting him, not just the message. And so here, here's the thing I'm saying, don't put expectations on yourself that God is going, I don't even put those expectations on you. Here's what God calls you to do is to share the gospel in truth and with love, and then leave the results to God. 
Now, less than a week after Jesus comes into Jerusalem being celebrated as, as a king, he's hanging on a cross. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, it says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now, Jesus is ultimately going to crush all rebellion against God and his purposes. Um, and, and sin is ultimately rebellion against God. It's saying, you know what, I, I think I would rather be king than you, God. Like, I think I know better than you do in certain areas of life. And ultimately, it's treason against the creator king of the cosmos. And so treason needs to be, to be punished. We don't like this idea of punishment if we're the one receiving it. But if God were not to punish sin, we'd have a huge issue with that if we're the ones who've been sinned against. We, we would be like, God, you're not good. You're not fair if he doesn't deal with this until he deals with it. And, and the consequences for treason of rebellion against God, scripture says, well, here's what's fair. It's death. Again, we, we don't like this. And if we're going fair, you pay for your sin and there's none of us in this room that have like been like, I've nailed it my entire life. We're all guilty. And so we would pay for our sin, but the gospel, it's, it's not really fair. It says that God sent his sinless son to die as the perfect sacrifice for sin on the cross. And that sinless part is, is huge because if Jesus wasn't sinless, he had sin that he had to pay for himself. But since he was sinless, he goes to the cross, he dies and he's able to take his death and credit it to your account. And he offers this freely as a gift to anybody who would believe, who would receive it. But it must be chosen. We must choose to accept it and have our sin paid for by him and be made right with God. Now as the warrior king, Jesus, he, he does come to fight, but he's not fighting flesh and blood. He's fighting spiritual forces. He's conquering sin and death. And as a, as a Christian, we, we can go, okay, we're realists. We look at the world and we see the brokenness. We see the pain. We see the hurt. We see the struggle. But at the same time, we don't kind of get pessimistic and go like, man, it's, it's, it's over. No, we have hope because the gospel says Jesus is going to come again. And when he does, that's when his reign of peace will fully come. Evil's days are numbered. And the basis for this peace is Christ's blood shed on the cross. So for believers, this peace looks like reconciliation with God as his friends. That we're no longer enemies because we recognize who God is and we've, we've received Jesus' work on our behalf. But if we choose not to believe or reject Christ, that reign of peace is still going to be enforced upon us. Because ultimately all rebellion against God is going to be decisively defeated by Christ as the conquering king. And scripture goes, okay, in the end, it, we, we end up in one of two places forever. We end up in heaven with God, enjoying his goodness and his glory and his grace, and we're his children, and we're heirs of all the promises that scriptures speak about. Or we spend forever apart from God. And when you're apart from God, you do not get to enjoy all his goodness and his grace. It's just kind of the natural outcome of not being with God. And just as Jesus weeps for Jerusalem, it breaks his heart that is going to happen. God does not relish this idea of hell, does not relish the idea that people will be there. But the beauty of the gospel is that there's now a choice available to us that wasn't available to us before the cross of Christ. But it's a choice. 
that God's not going to force his will upon anybody in this. Like, I, we hear the re, kind of the rejection of God all the time. It goes like this. I can't believe in a God who wouldn't take everybody to heaven. That, that he, he'd sentence people to hell. I, I, I can't believe in that God. But here's the thing. If God was to go like, okay, everybody, we're going to heaven. There'd be those people who go, I can't worship a God who forces his will upon us. How, how, can it be, how can it be good that they'd reject him for this? Now, through the gospels and scripture, what's God after? Relationship. That's, that's what he wants. That's what he's created you for. But he wants you to choose that relationship. And so as you read what Christ has done for you, we should read this God going, I'm pleading with you. Come back. I want you. I love you. I desire you. But I want you to choose me. I want you to choose this relationship. Luke chapter 19, verse 45, it says, and, and we should understand, most gospels or commentators go, that this is actually the next day after the triumphal entry. It says, then, Luke, then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. After this or that, he taught daily in the temple, but the leading priests and all the teachers of religious law and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him, but they could think of nothing because all the people hung on his every word. Now, Matthew's gospel says, in this moment, Jesus goes into the temple and he starts flipping tables. Um, and we go, man, Jesus, like, this, this seems so un-Jesus of you. Um, I, I played Risk, the board game Risk, like global domination uh, with some friends years ago. And, and we're playing the game, and it can get kind of intense. And one of the guys, we're playing on a folding table, he just stands up and goes, and flips the table and just walks away. Now, we're sitting there, and we don't ask this question, how do you think he feels? Do you, do you think he might be upset? Like, when somebody's, like, flipping tables, that's a pretty good indication of how they feel. And so we're going, like, Jesus, what's got you all riled up that you're going into the temple flipping tables and you're driving people out? Again, context is huge. So every year, Jewish males had to pay a tax to the temple, and it was a, a half shekel. And so this is equivalent to two days' pay for the average working man. Um, and so all kinds of currencies are in circulation in Palestine. They, they work for most things. But the problem is these currencies had uh, imagery on them or terminology that was kind of idolatrous. And so that's not going to work in God's house. And so you had to exchange those other currencies into uh, the, the Tyrian half shekel, which was accepted there, um, in order to pay your tax. And so they had set up some booths inside of the temple where you could come and exchange your money. That's what the, the money changers are for. Now, almost every visit to the temple involves some sort of animal sacrifice as well. And sacrificial animals, you could buy them outside of the temple, you could bring them in, and, and the prices were pretty reasonable. But the problem was this, that the temple had set up inspectors because the, 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 the sacrifice had to be without spot or blemish. And, and when they're recruiting for the inspectors, they, they're going like high type A people, just like very anal about every little detail. And so you could show up, it's like, ah, I got this without spot and blemish, and this guy would be like, ah, no, not good enough. And they go, but conveniently, we have some booths over here. You just step over this way and you can buy a sacrifice that is perfectly acceptable. It's pre-inspected, guaranteed to be approved. Now, the selling of sacrificial animals and the changing of money, we can go, man, 
they made the temple way much more user-friendly. It's a one-stop shop. Like, you just bring your money, you, you pay, and you convert it, and then you buy your sacrifice, and, and you can go on your way. And so, again, why is Jesus losing his cool? And here's the way that I think we can best think about it. Have you ever gone to a music festival, and as you go there, there's a big guy who goes, no food or drink. And you don't question that guy because he's bigger than you, and they make you pour out your water bottle and throw out your food, and you're going, but I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm thirsty. And they're like, don't worry. You can buy stuff inside. You're like, okay, cool. And you get in and it's like, okay, I want some water. And it's $7 for a bottle of water. And you're like, okay, I got to eat. I'm going to be here for quite a while. And so you go to the food vendors and they're like, $14 for a hamburger that's been lying in the sun and tastes like cardboard. And it's like, you don't have a choice. They won't let you bring stuff in. It's like only certain things are acceptable in this kind of little music festival village. And you, you have to play by their game. And you're going, this is extortion. And that's what's happening kind of in the temple. That every time somebody comes and tries to exchange money, well, it's going to cost them about 4 to 8%. Um, when somebody wants to buy an animal for the temple sacrifice, they might discover that a pair of doves could cost 25 times the amount that it did outside of the temple. But here's the thing, what option do you have when the, the, the person who inspects it goes, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. Like eventually you're just like, I'm just gonna buy and get this done with, I'm here to worship God. Now here's the thing, the temple booths, they had a name, they were called the booths of Anaz. And, and who is Anaz? Well, he's a powerful high priest in the temple. And so the enormous profits from these booths that are set up in the temple area go to enrich the family of the high priest. And so Jesus burns with anger at such a, a, a perversion of the use of God's house. He cleanses the, the, the temple because people are being exploited. But it's not just that. Where had Anaz set up his booths? Inside of the court of the Gentiles. And so if you're not Jewish and you want to come and worship God, that's your place. That's the only place you can be in the temple is the court of the Gentiles, but they've got their booths all set up everywhere. So you're, like, you're kind of getting squeezed out by the, the business and you, you're not really able to worship God in kind of quietness and stillness. And so the high priest had commercialized the worship of God and was ultimately preventing people from being able to come to God in some ways. Now imagine um, I'm at home one day and somebody comes into my house and they start like rearranging all my furniture and they start telling my kids what to do. And if I don't know who this person is, I'm gonna be like, who are you? Like, well, what are you doing? What gives you that right? On whose authority are you doing this? And I'm gonna go like, this person's nuts. This person's crazy. But if that person is my wife and she comes in and she starts um, moving the furniture around and she's like, Seth, do your homework. Jane, clean up your toys. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna be like, yeah, you're an authority in this house, that you have the right to do this. And so when Jesus comes into the temple, we have to understand he's either a crazy guy or he's doing it understanding that he has the authority to do it. And Jesus understood himself to be the divine son of God, which meant he had the authority to dictate what happens in his father's house. Again, what does Jesus say? This is, this is to be a place of prayer. In other words, he's going, this, this is not a place of business. This is a place of worship, of relationship with God. And heaven forbid that we ever take the church and turn it into a business. I pray that this will always be a place where we can come 
and we can have a relationship with God. Now, Jesus understood himself to be both Messiah and God, and so the question of who is Jesus is the single most important question I believe that you're ever going to answer. But some of us are going, I'm going to stay in the middle. I'm going to be neutral. I'm not going to love Jesus and go all out for him, but I'm not going to hate him either. But in the Gospels, you discover that there's only two types of people. There's those who love, accept, and follow him, or those who reject and hate him, and ultimately are all right with his death. Those were the only two options in the Gospels, and those are our only two options. There's no third option presented. Author Mark Clark, he says, the I like, respect, and value Jesus as a leader or a teacher or an example route isn't on the table. Why? Because Jesus doesn't allow it. C.S. Lewis, he, he puts it this way, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a man-man or something worse. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. And again, maybe we're here, we're going, but I want to stay in that uncommitted middle. That, that place doesn't exist. That in the end, we have to make a decision. And I know for some of us, we, we, that decision, we go, I'll make it some other time. I'll do it some other day. Don't have time right now, or I'm not sure. And we put it off, but in the end, to ultimately put off that decision will have been a decision in the end. It will not have been the decision we should have made. And so why is who is Jesus the most important decision you will ever make? Because ultimately it has eternal implications. And Jesus says to the Jewish people, yeah, you missed your moment. And maybe today is your moment. Don't miss it. Maybe today is the day you finally accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you recognize who he is and the implications that has on your life. And if you want to do that, you, you can speak to me after the service. You can speak to Greg or one of our other leaders, or you can fill out a Connect card online at halifaxchristianchurch.ca. But again, Mark Clark, he says this, who is Jesus is the question around which all other questions orbit. Your answer determines how you answer almost every other question because it will inform how you make every decision. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me.